Welcome to the October 1st, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will learn more about the preclinical and clinical development of optimized bivalent tandem CD20 and CD19 chimeric antigen receptor T-cells for treatment of relapsed refractory non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Examine a study that reveals the first stage in the clearance of senescent red blood cells by the spleen, and review a manuscript that describes the first transgenic mouse model fully reproducing specific renal lesions and kidney dysfunction observed in human light chain deposition disease. Our first topic is a study entitled Optimized Tandem CD19-CD20 CAR-Engineered T-Cells in Refractory Relapsed B-Cell Lymphoma, reported by Chuang Tong from the Chinese PLA General Hospital and other colleagues at Tsinghua University in China. Chimeric antigen receptors, or CARs, are synthetic receptors for antigens that reprogram T-cell specificity, function, and persistence. Autologous T-cells engineered to express a CD19-targeting CAR exhibit remarkable efficacy in patients with hematological malignancies, such as B-cell acute lymphocytic leukemia and B-cell lymphoma. However, while many studies have shown that CD19 is an effective immunotherapy target, in relapsed or refractory non-Hodgkin lymphoma, or NHL, due to its abundant but restricted expression in both normal and malignant B-cells. Nevertheless, relapse remains a major challenge and is primarily thought to be due in both a lack of CAR T-cell persistence and the emergence of tumor cells that either lack CD19 expression or have reduced antigen expression below the threshold required for CAR T-cell cytotoxicity. Recently, Several approaches have been developed to circumvent resistance to CAR T-cells, including simultaneously targeting two antigens with a single CAR T-cell construct. For example, previously reported findings from Greta and colleagues suggest that a single-chain bispecific CAR targeting both CD19 and human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 demonstrated that targeting two antigens with a tandem CAR construct was feasible. These data fueled Tong and colleagues' interest in developing a tandem CAR capable of targeting both CD19 and CD20, two antigens expressed by many non-Hodgkin lymphoma cells. In their blood manuscript, Tong and colleagues report TANCAR7, a dual CD19 and CD20 receptor, and demonstrated excellent dual antigen specificity, enhanced immune synapse formation, and superior anti-tumor activity in vitro. Additionally, in vivo studies in a murine xenograft model showed that the tandem construct was superior when compared to the same constructs targeting only one of the antigens. Following these successful preclinical studies, the authors conducted an open-label, single-arm phase 1-2A trial to explore the safety and tolerability of TANCAR-7 T-cells in patients with relapsed or refractory NHL or chronic lymphocytic leukemia. The primary objective of the clinical trial was to evaluate the safety and tolerability of TANCAR-7 T-cells. The secondary objectives were to evaluate efficacy, progression-free survival, and overall survival. 33 patients were enrolled in the study, of which 82% had stage 3 or 4 disease, 
46% had an ECOG performance status score of 2. 25% had bulky disease. 64% were positive for Key 67 in more than 70% of lesions at baseline. 61% had extranodal organ involvement. And 86% had refractory disease. Of note, two or three days before infusion, all study participants received lymphodepleting doses of cyclophosphamide with or without doxorubicin liposome. Overall, the authors found that TANCAR-7 T-cell administration was relatively safe, had excellent efficacy, low toxicity, and may reduce antigen escape relapse in these patients. Cytokine release syndrome occurred in 14 of the 28 patients who received infusion after conditioning chemotherapy. 36% of patients were grade 1 or 2, and only 14% were grade 3. No cases of CAR T-cell-related encephalopathy syndrome of grade 3 or higher were seen in any patient. One patient died from treatment-associated severe pulmonary infection. The overall response rate was 79%, and the complete response rate was 71%. Progression-free survival rate at 12 months was 64%. These results suggest that TANCAR-7 T-cells elicit a potent and durable anti-tumor response, but are not associated with a higher level of severe cytokine release syndrome or encephalopathy in patients with relapsed or refractory NHL. The authors speculate that the formation of superior immune synapse structures by dual antigen targeting may increase robust anti-tumor activity without triggering excessive cytokine production. In accompanying commentary on the study, Stephen Schuster from the University of Pennsylvania concurs that the early results of the study are promising and may reflect a reduction in therapeutic failures associated to antigen escape. However, he also points out that larger disease-specific cohorts are needed to compare outcomes of tandem bispecific CAR T-cells with currently available single CAR T-cell therapies. Our next topic today will be a study entitled Hemolysis in the Spleen Derives Erythrocyte Turnover, conducted by Thomas Klee at the University of Amsterdam and other colleagues in the Netherlands and Denmark. In this study, Klee and colleagues present novel data to support the hypothesis that the first step in clearance of senescent red blood cells by the spleen is adherence to the extracellular matrix proteins in the splenic microenvironment, followed by hemolysis. This allows the resulting red blood cell ghosts to be efficiently removed by splenic macrophages in the red pulp. Red pulp macrophages of the spleen mediate turnover of billions of senescent erythrocytes per day. However, the molecular mechanisms involved in the sequestration of senescent erythrocytes, their recognition, and their subsequent degradation by red pulp macrophages remain unclear. Erythrocytes circulate for an average of 120 days before becoming prone to removal from circulation in the spleen. While the specific changes that lead to clearance of senescent RBCs from circulation remain uncertain, various processes and factors have been identified that may contribute, including the accumulation of removal signals, such as phosphatidylserine exposure, conformational changes in CD47, oxidation of proteins and lipids that render them susceptible to complement deposition, loss of membrane deformability, and activation of adhesion molecules. 
The activation of adhesion molecules is of particular interest, and previous studies have shown that activation of the basal cell adhesion molecule, or LUBCAM, as well as CD44, occurs specifically on aged red cells, for example. To gain insight into these processes, the authors studied red pulp macrophages and erythrocytes isolated from human spleen tissue. Interestingly, they found that red pulp macrophages were rarely found to be in the process of phagocytosing intact erythrocytes. Rather, they found that human spleen tissue is filled with erythrocyte ghosts, the membrane remnants of erythrocytes that have lost their hemoglobin content. Through in vivo imaging and transfusion experiments, the authors showed that erythrocyte ghosts form as a consequence of prolonged erythrocyte retention to extracellular matrix proteins under low shear stresses. The red cell ghosts were then phagocytosed by red pulp macrophages and destroyed. These results suggest that the induction of hemolysis of red cells trapped in the spleen is a key event that precedes engulfment and destruction of senescent red cells by macrophages. Next, the authors sought to determine the mechanisms by which the splenic environment initiates hemolysis of senescent erythrocytes. The splenic red pulp architecture consists of narrow endothelial slits that trap aged erythrocytes because of their increased stiffness, leading to their sequestration. They went on to show that laminin A5, the ligand of LUBCAM, can mediate binding of aged red cells in vitro and initiate the process of hemolysis to produce ghosts. These ghosts could then be recognized and phagocytosed by red pulp macrophages. These findings, the authors argue, thus demonstrate that hemolysis is a key contributor to erythrocyte turnover. The authors go on to speculate that this also explains why erythrophagocytosis of senescent erythrocytes is only observed in vivo, but not in vitro, as the splenic architecture is required to drive hemolysis that allows for the recognition of the erythrocyte remnant by red pulp macrophages. In summary, the authors claim their findings suggest, first, that aged erythrocytes interact with the extracellular matrix of the spleen, resulting in hemolysis and ghost formation, and additionally, that ghost formation enables more efficient recognition, phagocytosis, and destruction of senescent erythrocytes by red pulp macrophages. James Zimring from University of Virginia School of Medicine states, in his commentary on the study entitled, Turning Over a New Leaf on Turning Over RBCs, that while there may be redundant pathways for RBC clearance, multiple pathways, often in opposition, may also coexist and result in outcomes that are based on a balance of opposing factors. Zimring claims that Klee and colleagues present a provocative new hypothesis, resolving the discordance between red pulp macrophage behavior in vitro and in vivo, and that the most profound implications of their work include that changes in surface properties of intact red blood cells are insufficient to cause consumption by red pulp macrophages, and that red cells must first undergo the process of becoming a ghost. In conclusion, Zimring points out, that like most new hypotheses, while some questions are answered, new questions are brought to light. He suggests that while the author's findings fundamentally advance our understanding of the process of clearance of senescent red pulp macrophages, they will also compel a reinterpretation of existing data and significant advancement in the future of the field. Our final topic today is a study entitled 
Immunoglobulin light chain toxicity in a mouse model of monoclonal immunoglobulin light chain deposition disease. Conducted by Sébastien Bender at the Université de Limoges and other colleagues in France. Light chain deposition disease, or LCDD, is a rare disorder characterized by glomerular and paratubular amorphous deposits of a monoclonal immunoglobulin, Ig, light chain, leading to nodular glomerulosclerosis and nephrotic syndrome. However, little is known about the pathogenic mechanisms involved in glomerular damage. Bander and colleagues developed a transgenic mouse model using site-directed insertion of the variable domain of pathogenic human light chain gene into the mouse Ig kappa locus, ensuring its production by all plasma cells, along with the deletion of the heavy chain genes. The resulting mice had high free light chain levels in their serum. The authors found that their new mouse model recapitulated the characteristic features of light chain deposition disease in humans, including progressive glomerulosclerosis, nephrotic range proteinuria, and finally, kidney failure. Serum light chain levels were similar to those observed in patients with LCDD, progressively increased with age, and persisted during the lifespan of the animals. Benz-Jones proteinuria was readily detectable in five-month-old mice, and renal lesions were found by six months. The variable domain of the light chain bore alone the structural properties involved in its pathogenicity. RNA sequencing conducted on plasma cells demonstrated that LCDD light chains induce changes in gene expression characteristic of endoplasmic reticulum stress, similar to that seen in human plasmar cells. A subset of the LCDD mice were treated with the proteasome inhibitor bortezomib, along with cyclophosphamide, starting at six months. Reduction of circulating pathogenic light chains was efficiently achieved and not only preserved renal function, but partially reversed kidney lesions. Finally, transcriptome analysis of presclerotic glomeruli revealed that proliferation and extracellular matrix remodeling represented the first steps of glomerulosclerosis. Bondé and colleagues have therefore described the first mouse model fully recapitulating the features of light chain deposition disease including both glomerulosclerosis and end-stage kidney disease. In addition to confirming toxicity of abnormal light chains for plasma cells, the new mouse model may be useful to design and test new therapeutic strategies for LCDD and other related diseases. The authors further suggest such a model will likely be useful to understand the molecular mechanisms leading to glomerulosclerosis in other monoclonal immunoglobulin deposition diseases and other nephropathies, such as those associated with diabetes. In accompanying commentary on the study, Nelson Lung from the Mayo Clinic suggests this study shows a major breakthrough with the successful development of a model of light chain deposition using knock-in kappa light chain gene in a transgenic mouse model. Additionally, he points out that it not only reproduces all the features of human disease, but does not rely on myeloma cells that have been a double-edged sword in other models. Lung concludes by stating models like these are essential for the development of new alternative treatments that do not rely on cytotoxic drugs. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week 
for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.